Well, thank you very much. If you look in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, a very learned volume which I happen to have on my shelf at home, it tells you that nothing is an awe-inspiring yet essentially undigested concept, highly esteemed by writers of a mystical or existentialist persuasion, but by most other, others regarded with anxiety, nausea and panic. <laughs> well, uh, Nothing is something that comes in different flavours and varieties. There are sort of noughts and zeros for all occasions. Uh, there are zero hours, there are ciphers, there are sort of nullities. And when I look in the financial pages of the newspapers, they even tell me there are things called zeros that I ought to be considering investing in. Well, uh, in this talk, I want to try and focus uh, upon the mathematical zero, but I will skim at first, I hope if this works, uh, on a few other aspects of the idea of nothing and zero, because they do relate one to the other, uh, and they form the context in which the mathematical symbol of zero either did or did not appear. So, if you look through these different systems of thought, philosophy, physics, literature, art and music, theology and cosmology, you'll find that the idea of nothing or of zero uh, or of the vacuum or the void played a key historical role. So, for example, in philosophy, there was an ongoing dilemma about whether something could be nothing. And the Greeks, for example, did not have uh, a symbol for zero. They did not believe that nothing was something that could be admitted into their philosophical system without causing a dire problem, indeed a complete collapse. In the area of physics, it was the issue of the vacuum and the void where nothingness raised its head and an ongoing issue over millennia as to whether a real vacuum could exist in nature, the counterpart of whether true physical infinities could exist as well. In art and literature, we'll see in a moment, there was a range of paradoxes. You're familiar with Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, this was a little device when nothing was a dangerous idea, uh, challenged by religious authorities who thought really it was a type of atheism. Uh, if you wanted to talk about nothing and zero and the void and the vacuum, it was good to do it with wordplay and paradox because you could always deny that you were taking it seriously at all. So if a paradoxist is lying, he doesn't lie uh, because he lies about nothing. So uh, this was a simple defence mechanism for being taken too seriously in certain areas of philosophy and theology. And of course, in theology and modern cosmology, the whole idea of creation out of nothing uh, is an entire story in itself. In art and music, uh, you'll remember uh, these unusual blank canvases. I can remember many, many years ago looking into the story of one of these blank canvases where the, uh, the artist faced a, um, a priority dispute with another artist who claimed that his work had been copied. Uh, uh, John Cage's four minutes, 33 seconds of silence, I actually took part in the Italian, Italian premiere of uh, this work at Parco Musica uh, in Rome in front of four and a half thousand people. Um, I found even the musicians could never tell me why it was four minutes and 33 seconds. 
uh, silence. Uh, I think I know, it's 273 seconds, so this is absolute zero of sound. And it's rather interesting why no one can keep quiet for those four minutes and 33 seconds. I think that's what the joke really is. And here's uh, our friend William Shakespeare with his wordplay, uh, and these other philosophical uh, wordplays of their own. So this is a, a background context in which you have to think about the idea of nothing and nothingness. So why did I say the, the Greeks were suspicious of the idea of zero or nothing in their arithmetic, in their logic. So here's a bogus proof that you might well pass as a real proof a long, long time ago that would make you very worried about using the zero in your mathematical system. So suppose that you believed that naught was equal to naught times naught, and of course naught is naught, and then if you took one of these equations away from the other, you would have on the left-hand side, naught minus naught was naught. And on the other side, you would have naught times naught minus naught. And you might think you could factorise that as naught times naught minus one. Uh, and then you could cancel the naught. So you would have a one there and a naught minus one there. So two is zero. So having proved that, you can prove that anything is true. So... Uh, you could easily come to see why you wouldn't want this idea in your logical or your mathematical system at all. Or if you did, you really need to tread very carefully and look very critically at some of the steps that are going on in the lines on this slide. That's left as an exercise for you on the journey home. <laughs> well, arithmetically, in the history of mathematics, of course, the idea of having a zero, introducing a zero, something that neither the Romans uh, nor the Greeks nor the Chinese primarily ever did. In order to need to do that, you need a type of counting system in which the position of your numerals carries information. So, for example, uh, if you're a Roman and you write I, 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 uh, that means 1 plus 1 plus 1, it means 3. If you're an ancient Egyptian, you would do something similar. If you're an ancient Chinese with rod numerals, you would also do something similar. So the positions of these ones, and if there are a little bit of spacing between two of them and not between another one, wouldn't tell you anything else. But for us, if you see 111, it doesn't mean three at all, unless you're looking at the wrong type of antiquarian clock. Uh, it means 100 plus 10 plus 1. So the positions carry meaning about value. And this is what you learn at school these days, the so-called place value notation. And there were only a few ancient cultures that developed a counting system which had the place value property. And if you do that, you can see you better have a way of denoting that one of the slots has nothing in it, that it's empty. So that... In our system, if you write 1, 0, 1, it is different from just 1 with a space and then another 1. So you have to have a way of saying that one of these three slots doesn't carry any symbol, it doesn't carry any value. So 101 means 100 plus no tens plus 1. I call this the no-entry problem. And 
two of the civilizations that devised it didn't see the zero or the symbol that was denoting an empty slot in quite the same way that we see it or the Indian culture saw it. It didn't have all the aspects that our zero does. It was not the answer to a calculation of the sort that two take away two equals zero. It was just an empty slot. So uh, the zero itself, let's just look at a little list before we look at some pictures. Who were the three leading civilizations that primarily introduced the idea of that empty slot marker in their place value system? The Babylonians, about 400 for the Christian era, and then the Mayans, 500 to 925, a very wide period in the Christian era, and the Indian uh, culture, uh, 300 to 400. In Europe, the idea of the Indian system, which we'll see is the most complete uh, and logical one, passes to European scholars and practitioners via uh, the medium of Arab influence and Arab trade. And we see a whole host of words gradually appearing uh, from the East uh, into Latin uh, and into Greek. From Indians, Sunya, and then Zephirum and Asipha in Arabic. These words you recognize are the beginnings of our words for cipher. Sifra, Zephirum. You see a few products on the high street with names like this. So the word zero becomes also the word for cipher, for symbol. And in Old English, you sometimes see rather unkind expressions of someone being described, for example, as a, a cipher in their own household. It means they're a sort of nothing. They have no influence at all. They're a zero. Later on uh, in Europe, we start to have, along with the symbol itself of the circle, uh, these Latin uh, nulla figura, the circulus, or just the little circle to denote the symbol, uh, and finally the thica. So these are the words. This is the evolution of the history uh, through the words. Let's have a look at uh, some of the simple examples. So back in uh, Babylonians, their precursors in uh, Sumer, uh, the motivation for introducing that symbol for an empty slot is accountancy. So if you're producing your cuneiform tablets and you're keeping rather meticulous records of financial interactions, you need to be able to make an entry that indicates that there is no uh, figure being entered in your place value slot. So the two angles for your stylus here, you have in a base 60 system, you have two lots of 60 here, and you have uh, no lot of 1 times 60, and then here uh, you have these five symbols here. Down here, uh, this would be how we might write this today, uh, a number like uh, uh, 3612. It's 1 times 60 squared plus 0 times 60 plus 1 times 10 plus 2 times 1. So in both cases, you see the, uh, the 0 uh, slot, the vacant slot being introduced uh, to guide the eye. At the beginning, the Babylonians didn't use a symbol for the vacant slot. They just tried to space things out a bit. Uh, but that was clearly not terribly satisfactory. 
The Mayans' introduction of a symbol for zero in their place value system uh, was not motivated by accountancy. Curiously, it was in many ways motivated by aesthetics. So the Mayans had two parallel counting systems, run rather sort of dull and straightforward, <coughs> um, and the other rather more formal uh, and beautiful and pictorial, where pictorial glyphs were built up from syllables and words to make whole pictures. And so the missing entry problem of the Babylonians turns out to be missing a part of the picture. So it's aesthetically rather ugly if you've got a gap in your composite glyph where there should be an empty space. And so a picture needs to be created to represent that space or the zero. So these were the simple symbols, the variants of this shell-like figure that was used in the simple numerals for zero. And uh, here's a typical type of calculation. Uh, they used a base 20 system, but not terribly consistency. consistently. Instead of going up to uh, a next slot of 400, uh, they used 360 instead for calendrical reasons. The 360 days was required. The Mayans had extraordinarily precise calendar systems, more precise than the European invaders that first encountered them uh, in South America from Europe. But they never invented the wheel. Uh, they had no <coughs> sophisticated types of technology that we find uh, a common uh, in the European world. So gradually they build up uh, these beautiful glyph-like symbols. Here's the one for zero with the man resting his hand uh, upon his chin. So an aesthetic motivation for filling the gap in the composite picture with the parts of the numbers. The third story uh, is, of course, about the Indian invention of the zero and the numerals and the system that we use today. The Indo numerals, or the Indo-Arab numerals, as they're sometimes called, are the closest that we have to a universal language in the world today. This is even more commonplace than the Phoenician alphabet. It's used everywhere. And what the system comprises of is a base 10, a system of numerals, uh, a place value system, so the relative position of those numerals carries information as well as the identity of the numeral. And there is a zero symbol. It begins life in the early stages of this system as merely a dot, which has all sorts of other philosophical, almost mystical, significance, but then it blossoms out to become a zero or a circle. The other beautiful aspect of a real binary system like this is that just by adding a zero on the end of a string of numbers, you, you effect a multiplication by 10. And this is familiar to us from our arithmetic system. We gain it from the Indian system. And here's a little chart which shows you the evolution of the symbols themselves uh, over a huge period of time from uh, the Brahmian Hindu versions. These are recognisable as our modern symbols to some extent, uh, the Arab influence and then in medieval times and in modern times. So uh, the zero is pretty constant uh, and 
pretty uh, recognisable. When people ask you what's new in the history of mathematics, the stock answer is, of course, nothing, I hope. But uh, you probably noticed by looking at the BBC a few months ago that there was an interesting discovery announced in this very story, uh, a discovery made in the, uh, uh, the dark archives of the Bodleian Library in Oxford, where uh, there is an impressive but incredibly delicate manuscript made up, I think, of about 90 uh, pieces of birch on which there is uh, writing. Uh, so delicate that you can't really study this in ways that you would want in great detail. Uh, it can't be touched very easily without breaking up. But what had been done uh, some while ago was a dating, a radiocarbon dating by the physics department of various leaves of this uh, uh, document. And here are some of them mounted from long ago. It was found back in 1881 in a, a region of India up by the northwest frontier under British rule. I think the region is in uh, part of Pakistan today. And three of the pages or folios were dated. And the interesting thing is the dates are very, very different. So this volume is like a collection of different leaves from different times and perhaps with different purposes that have been put together uh, about calculation and uh, displaying mathematical symbols. Uh, and on this folio 16... Uh, here, uh, going back to about 224, uh, 383, uh, there is uh, a calculation here which shows the use, the first recorded use of this zero symbol, this large dot. So there was great excitement uh, in that previously people thought that this wasn't being used uh, much earlier than the 8th century. But here is a use which is five or 600 years earlier. So perhaps uh, there's more to be learned. It would be amazing if you just happen to have found the first use. Undoubtedly, this is not. Uh, but there's a motivation to search more widely uh, and to search in these records as well. Well, that's the historical story. What can we say about um, the mathematical zero in a more modern context? The first thing to know about modern mathematics uh, is that it's not like ancient mathematics. It's not like numerology in the sense that the symbols are not supposed to have any intrinsic meaning. They just tell you the relationships between things. And each mathematical system that you define, whether it's an algebra, uh, a geometry, or a new type of logic, uh, the symbols have a meaning within that system only. They might happen to share meaning with another system because the logic is shared. So when you define a mathematical system that possesses a zero in it, so a symbol that when you add it, say, to something else in the system, there is no change, this zero is defined in this system. And logically, it's distinct from a zero that might exist in another logical system. And if you look at other types of mathematical system, maybe groups of rotations, uh, uh, other group theoretical operations, there will be things which play the role of a zero which are distinct from the type of zero we're familiar with in arithmetic. Here's an outlandish one, uh, null graphs. What's a graph? Well, 
this is an interesting graph. This was the first sketch that Harold Beck ever drew when he had the idea of how to design the London Underground map back in 1930s. And you can see even with this little sketch, it's recognisable as the map that you see today in the underground. He was an electronics person, and that's why it looks like a circuit diagram. And he's expanded uh, the middle, uh, and he's brought the outside in. But this is a graph. It contains points or nodes, and it contains lines that pass through the nodes as points of intersection. And it can be more complicated. Uh, it can have closed loops. It can have open loops. Well, uh, what does the null graph look like? Well, the null graph's got no points. Uh, it's got no lines. It's really not very interesting at all. And here it is. So there is a counterpart of the zero, uh, even in the world of graphs and networks and diagrams. But it's not like the zero of arithmetic. There's something else that mathematicians like and really find uh, really rather uh, impressive, uh, which is different from the zero, and it's called the empty set. So sets were introduced by Boole into mathematics as a way of joining together all sorts of things that appeared superficially different, collections of things with certain sorts of properties. And just as you had to introduce the zero symbol to mark an empty slot in your place value system, if you're going to play with sets, you better have a way of talking about a set that hasn't got anything in it, or what's left in the set after you take everything that's in it out of it. And this is the empty set. So it's a set that's got no members. So it's like some people's sort of bank accounts or something like that. <clears throat> and I like the empty set because I think you can invent a sort of ontological argument for its existence. There's no way you could get rid of it. And you might phrase it like this. The fool has set in his heart there is no empty set. But if that were so, then the set of all such sets would be empty and hence, it would be the empty set. So, uh, it's a sort of counterpart of Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. But the more serious aspect of the empty set, and sets in general, was recognised in the 1920s by the great polymath John von Neumann, who showed how you could produce a definition of all the natural numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on, just using the empty set. It really is creation out of nothing. So what he wants to do is to define zero to be the empty set. And then he's going to define the number one to be the set that contains only the empty set. And then he defines the number two to be the set that contains zero and one. That is, it contains the empty set and the set that contains only the empty set. And then he carries on. He defines three to be the set contains zero, one, and two, which is the set that contains the empty set, the set that contains the empty set, and the set that contains the empty set, and the set that contains the empty set. So you can see how it's going to go. But in this way, you can very concisely and economically define all the integers, all the natural numbers, just in terms of counting processes in the empty set. And this is a nice way to think about it. So uh, the first step, uh, you know, you sort of think about uh, 
your empty set, uh, and then you think about thinking about the empty set, and then you think about thinking about thinking about the empty set, and so on. So this is a sort of pictorial diagram uh, of your thoughts about thoughts. Well, the last group of things I want to talk about um, are things to try and show you that zero and zero mathematics is not just something that lives hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the history of mathematics and mathematical notation, or even at the beginnings of set theory. But zeros play a part in modern mathematics and modern mathematical physics. That's a live issue in many cases and at the forefront of research. And the first uh, is just to bring you up to speed in outline of what's known as Riemann's hypothesis, one of the greatest unsolved problems of modern mathematics. If you solve it and publish it to everyone's satisfaction, you will receive a cheque for £1 million from the Clay Institute in America. So pay careful attention. Riemann wrote a most remarkable paper in 1859. Uh, you can look at it on the web, uh, and it's a most extraordinary collection of ideas and technical developments. And what he did was to define something that forever after has been known as the zeta function, and it's the sum of the terms that look like 1 over r to the n. And uh, if n was 1, so it would be the sum of 1 over r, the harmonic series, then you probably know this will diverge. This eventually becomes bigger than any number. You care to specify. If n is 2, then it converges. But you can ask all sorts of other questions about it. And the reason you're interested in these other questions, as I suspect Robin will show us, uh, Euler taught us something totally unexpected uh, and amazing. And you can prove this rather quickly from this relation uh, in many steps, I'm not going to do it, there's not time, by elementary methods, that you can show that this sum of 1 over n to some power s uh, looks like the infinite product of 1 minus 1 over p to the power s, where p are the primes. So this is a product over all the prime numbers. So there's an intimate connection between this series and the primes. And this is why people are interested in it, it can tell you how quickly and how accurately some of the favourite formulae for telling you how many primes there are, uh, less than a certain number, how accurately those estimates really tell you how many primes there are. So uh, what Riemann did was to think, well, let's think about this being a complex function. So instead of being a function of n, where n is just a number or even a fraction, let's let n be a complex number, we'll call it s, so it's got a real part plus the square root of minus 1 times t. So uh, Ray is going to tell you about the square root uh, of minus 1 in his sort of um, life of i lecture next. Uh, so this is, was Riemann's step, and what he then... Uh, realised, and others have analysed since in exhaustive detail, that that function has got all sorts of places where it has zeros. By zeros, we mean it has roots, places where it is equal to zero, values of s for which it's equal to zero. 
And another one of these rather beautiful formulae using the gamma function and sine enables you to express zeta of s in this way. And from this formula, it's straightforward to see that there are an unending number of what are called trivial zeros. So places where s is just equal to minus any of the even integers. Okay, so minus 2, minus 4, minus 6, minus 8. When you plug those values in, uh, the sign disappears and psi of s is 0. So these are called trivial zeros. So you won't get your sort of uh, GCSE in maths by just recognising the trivial zeros. Uh, you've got to think about the zeros that don't look like that. So uh, the Riemann hypothesis states the hypothesis, the conjecture, that all the other zeros of zeta s, an infinite number of them, all have the real part of this complex number s equal to a half. And if you have a super-duper computer, paid for by the Research Council, you could rather uh, sort of long-windedly just do a search to check whether this is true. This never proves anything, of course, although it could find a counterexample. Uh, but the first 10 trillion zeros uh, obey this rule. So people start to get a bit suspicious that maybe it's always true. You know, maybe if you could prove this, uh, then uh, you're going to get a million dollars. I should say, if you do think you've proved it, don't write to me. <laughs> write to Robin Wilson. <laughs> or better still, write to Marcus de Sauté, because Marcus actually works in this area of mathematics. Well, here's a picture of zeta s against s, uh, and these are negative values you see here, minus 4, minus 5, minus 10. So this is a picture of what that funny zeta s looks like uh, for the negative value. So here are the so-called trivial values that vanish at all the even negative numbers. So this is easy stuff, but what about the non-trivial zeros? So here's a picture. Here's the real axis here. And what's being plotted on here, uh, in blue are the imaginary parts, okay, the complex parts, and uh, in red are the real parts. And the places where the two intersect are the places where the zeros of the zeta function appear. And this is where a half is here. So if you look up, see the intersections, they're all at a half. They're all at a half. But no one can prove that they will always be at a half. So this is the problem of the zeros of the zeta function, the so-called Riemann hypothesis, the biggest unsolved problem in mathematics. Lastly, I want to show you something about zeros uh, in physics. We've been talking about zero as a number, but if you were an early Greek, there is another situation where you might scratch your head about things being zero. And it's the idea of zero size. I mean, after all, the number zero isn't an idealization. So we've all got no apples in our hand. Okay, that's not an approximation. But if someone told you something was zero size, or the most elementary particles of nature had zero size, then uh, you might start to ask, what does that mean? And there are people who've had to confront this. 
or just pass it by, look at Euclid's elements. He talks about points. He's joining points to li- with lines all the time. Those points have zero size, but he never dwells greatly on what this means. And presumably he knows, like everyone else, that no matter how small the sand grain you may pick up and place on the ground to draw your triangles and rectangles uh, in the dust to illustrate things, they're never real points of zero size. So the issue of zero size and zero size of points is a different issue with regard to zero. And this arises and arose dramatically in 1972 in a way that no one expected, a way that showed that Newtonian gravity and mechanics was really not consistent, not self-consistent. It sort of led to its own self-destruction. And an interesting example was created, a sort of hypothetical example, that we have five masses. Four of them were supposed to be the same. And they each go around each other in pairs in sort of binary systems. So you've got a binary pair here with big M, big M, and another binary pair down here, big M and big M, and they orbit around their common centre of gravity. The total angular momentum of the one at the top uh, is in the right-hand sense and equal and opposite in the left-hand sense at the bottom. So the total angular momentum of the whole system is zero. And then along the line joining their centres of mass, you introduce a much lighter particle. And you can set it up with a starting condition so that it just bounces backwards and forwards between the two binary pairs. But something rather dramatic happens, that when you have three self-gravitating bodies together, they are unstable, something that's been known for a long time, and the small one will get kicked out, and the other two will recoil and become more tightly bound. So when this little particle wanders up here into the orbit of the other two, it gets evicted pretty quickly, and the other two recoil away upwards. It then can travel down here where it joins in the fun with these two and gets kicked out of there, and comes back up into this one, gets kicked out of there, and it continues getting kicked backwards and forwards with the two binary pairs recoiling. But what happens is quite stunning. The prediction is that the separation of the binary pairs should tend to infinity in a finite period of time. And the number of oscillations undergone by the little particle is also infinite in a finite period of time. The initial conditions needed to realise this are uh, of sort of zero probability in some sense. It's like balancing a needle on its point. But nonetheless, as a point of principle, it shows you that there is something deeply wrong at the heart of Newtonian gravitation. And it's easy to see what it is, and it's associated with zero. To get this little example to work, and Frank Zia proved this in 1972, it was one of the great unsolved problems of dynamics from the 19th century that was left unsolved. Everyone expected it eventually to be shown that it was not possible for this to happen. But Zia shocked everyone by showing that it did. The problem is that the particles are points. And if you have point particles of zero size, 
then they can get as close as you like. Their separation can go to zero. And therefore, the 1 over r squared force of gravitation between them can become as large as you like. It goes to infinity as the separation goes to zero. So that's the cause of this pathology here. In Einstein's theory of general relativity, this is not possible in a rather sort of beautiful and elegant way. And you're saved from it by black holes. In the general theory of relativity, there are two principles that you can almost, I think, derive the theory uniquely from. The first is that there is a maximum velocity. In the last example, that little particle goes as fast as you like. It tends to infinity in its speed. There is no maximum speed. But in relativity, nothing can go faster than the speed of light in vacuum. But there is another principle that Gary Gibbons and I have argued uh, and proved uh, for a very wide range of situations that this is universal in general relativity. There is a maximum force. And it's given by fundamental constants of nature, c to the fourth over four times the gravitation constant. And if you multiply by another speed of light factor, uh, there is a maximum luminosity. And those recent discoveries of colliding black holes emitting gravitational waves are within one part in a hundred or so, uh, one part in a thousand, of the maximum possible luminosity and force. So this is not like the Newtonian situation. There is a maximum possible force. You can't get these things going to infinity in finite time. How does that come about? Well, if you have two masses which you try to bring arbitrarily close together, like in the Newtonian problem, then when they get sufficiently close, a black hole horizon forms around them. And they're caught inside the black hole and they can't be seen from the outside. So the formation of black holes protects general relativity from these paradoxes of zero separation and infinite force that inhabit uh, Newtonian gravitation. Finally, there's one other place where zeros uh, play an interesting part, and it's in superstring theory. Because in old-style particle physics, you regarded everything as being a quantum field, that particles had zero size. They were point particles. Their wave functions could be localized as much as you liked. But this always created a problem for particle physics, because uh, if you have point particles, that when they move through time and space, they will trace out lines. And if two of them interact in this way and then pass out as new particles or new states, you have a sharp corner there at the centre on the diagram. And what that illustrates that happens uh, in reality is an infinity is predicted in the calculations that mirrors the appearance of that sharp interaction point. We know that you shouldn't be able to predict that anything observable is infinite. And particle physicists for decades have had elaborate calculational procedures that can remove those infinities and leave the finite part behind. This is called renormalization. And the finite part that's left behind is often dazzlingly in agreement with observation to maybe nine or ten decimal places. But you know it can't be the 
whole story. You're not doing it in the best possible way. Superstring theory decided to give up the idea that the most fundamental things in nature are points of zero size and instead regard them as lines or little loops of finite size. So instead of having a point moving through space time tracing out a line, you now have a loop that traces out a tube. And if another particle interacts with it by uh, producing another tube and then two particles go out, the end diagram is like two pairs of trousers sewn together. But there's no sharp corner. It is now a smooth transition in and out, and that's reflected by the fact that this theory makes no predictions that any observable should be infinite. It is completely finite, and that's why everyone was so excited about it back in the early 1980s. So what happens is the little string loops have a tension, and at low temperature the tension becomes higher and they become more and more and more like points. So in the world of CERN and everyday high-energy physics, they behave as though they're point-like. But if you went to super high energies in the very early universe or other places in the universe where such uh, high temperatures exist, they would become intrinsically loop-like and stringy and behave very differently. So the infinities are removed by giving up the notion that the most elementary aspects of nature are point-like, but that they have finite size, not zero size. So that's all i really got time for. I hope I've convinced you, educated you a little about the history, but convinced you that zero is still alive uh, and challenging uh, advances at the forefront of maths and physics, that it's still, as it were, a hero after all these years. Thank you.